grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, we spoke to Rachel and Richard, a biological father and daughter who connected in 2017 using Jigsaw's Forced Adoption Support Services Intermediary Service. Today, Jane Sleeker and I will be further discussing the intermediary service and how it works. Hi, Jane. How's it going? Hey, Joe. Not bad at all. Um, good. How, how about are you travelling? Well, I'm doing all right again. I'm doing all right. And I apologise <laughs> yeah. if my dog barks. He's been barking all afternoon, harassing people. That is all right. I've closed my balcony doors so we don't hear any birds. But anyway. Good. Um, <laughs> it's kind of nice. Things are easing a tiny bit. I feel like every time we talk, there's like a new development with social distancing. <laughs> it's like we're getting um, paroled bit by bit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I went Unless for a drive to happens. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Is that on the weekend? Yeah, I did. I um, took my mother down to visit some relatives down there that she hasn't seen for um, a while and she actually cried when she got down there. So I think she's really been suffering under the isolation. So That's really sweet. I went for a drive on the weekend to actually have lunch with my birth family. So, Oh, beautiful. Nice to just get out of the city a little bit and drive. It is. 150Ks, I think that's still the limit. So much stuff we used to take for granted that (laughs) now is a really big deal. Yeah, exactly. So um, getting into today's episode, Jane, um, we heard from Rachel that when she got in touch with Jigsaw, she already had some details and she knew that she wanted help finding her father. Is that a typical experience? Well, it'd be nice if I had a stat for this, but I don't. Um, Some people do have their father's details when they contact us. Um, That might come from the official adoption records that they've received or it might be a name that the mother has given to them or a a family member of the mother. Um, Some people don't know anything at all, though, and they're sort of hoping for us to be able to help them to discuss how they might be able to find that out. Yeah. Um, I guess more and more now, some people are actually having success through things like ancestry DNA. So yes. uh, when, we're definitely not experts in that, but we're learning more and more all the time because it's just becoming It's a game changer, isn't it? It's a massive game changer. Yeah. It's, um, some people have a lot of success and even the people who don't have success in, in actually, I guess, identifying who their father is still get clues or contact with some yeah. family members and it's not that difficult to isolate what might be the mother's side and the father's side mm. and um and the other thing is new people are doing the tests all the time people tend to yeah. get them as christmas presents so people who have done them we encourage them to maybe get on there every couple of months and just see if they've got new matches but 
anyway that's a really good um tip because I've given two of them Mm -hmm. as um as Christmas presents but I also did one myself and it it actually led me into contact with two first cousins of Mm. my um birth mothers and um, we've been in contact and it's opened up a whole side of my family that I I didn't know much about so that's um, great yeah yeah. pretty exciting stuff actually it is yeah as long as I mean that's probably another episode to be honest um obviously you know anyone's got to approach some of those contacts very sensitively um, because well particularly I guess um if you haven't already established contact with a direct biological parent yeah yeah um because you know people people like I guess to be contacted directly and it it can potentially um undermine that relationship or just bring up some feelings if they think oh my goodness my child's had contact with um my cousin or (laughs) whoever yes Uh, whereas in your case you've known your mother for years so it's a bit yes yeah yeah exactly right but um but I guess I'll try to get back on the intermediary thing because we could talk all day but yeah that's probably (laughs) another topic we might actually want to get into a lot more detail about it I'll make a note yeah, make a note. <laughs> um, so I guess back on the, the DNA, uh, well, not the DNA, back on the intermediary, um, mm-hmm. often people have a name, sometimes they don't. So, yeah, if they don't, we might refer them to the relevant state department to try to see if there is some details or um, they might have it from a family member or, yeah, we might help them very sensitively th- to understand, I guess, some of those DNA yeah. results if that's an option. So um, I guess at that point, um, sometimes if the person is looking for a mother, um, Rachel's episode obviously was about a father, but if they're looking for a mother or if it's a mother looking or a mother or a father looking for a female child, mm-hmm. um, if someone has married, obviously the name might have changed. So sometimes there's an additional step where they'll then need to apply to birth, deaths and marriages. Um, yes, yeah. It can get a bit get... tricky sometimes, can't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, so I guess when people ring us, we do try to help them navigate, you know, the next step because you, you kind of need to apply for your adoption information first and then potentially birth, deaths and marriages. And then we can help people to locate the person. Uh, people mm. can do that themselves, but sometimes they want our help with that um so as Rachel mentioned in her episode um one of the most common avenues we use is the electoral roll yeah. uh, because it is a public document and the government the government department that releases the adoption information actually mentions that as one avenue so um often because you have to physically go into the office that can be a bit tricky if someone lives in the country um yeah. so we might do that on their behalf and during COVID-19 times I'll just say the electoral is closed so that's holding up some of our searches at the moment yeah <laughs> that would be really frustrating it is some people yeah. are having to wait which sucks yeah yeah um so I'm just thinking if I've sort of um covered everything there well some people at that point we we explain I suppose that we do offer an intermediary service and some people are very happy and want to make their own direct contact and that's absolutely fine and we would then offer if they would like some support with that. Um, Sometimes people want to kind of write their own letter and then get some feedback on that Mm -hmm. or um, sometimes, yeah, you know, they want to 
make that direct contact but then debrief with us. So that's, yes. that's absolutely fine. We really are about empowering people because a lot of people, when it came to the adoption itself, there wasn't a lot of control or choice. So we really want them to be informed of all their options but to make their own mind up about how they want to do things. Yeah, definitely. And, um, but, yeah, a lot of people do choose that they would like us to make that first contact as the intermediary. And, um, yeah. and we do in that process then still try to keep them as informed as possible, like every step of yeah. the way, so that they're involved in that process. Yeah, um, Jane, I wanted to take you back into just DNA testing for a moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we heard that in Rachel's very first contact with Jigsaw, DNA testing was discussed. Why is that? Well, probably because Rachel was very upfront that she was looking for her father at that mm-hmm. point and she'd already located her mother. We do recommend anyone looking to contact a father or a father trying to contact a child. We now... Um, highlight the recommendation that it's probably quite sensible to conduct a DNA test quite early in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason for this is that even when there's very clear information in the adoption records about who the father is or the mother has a very clear memory, um, even in cases where people have been certain, there have been a handful of cases over the years that we've experienced when People have built a relationship, fathers and the child have built a relationship and then thought they were very certain and even thought they could see some physical resemblance and then in one way or another down the track found out he wasn't the father. (sighs) So it's not a judgment call, you know. Um, It's not sort of anything negative. We're just, I guess, saying to people, look, if you just want that peace of mind, it's better to do that early. Um, and then yeah. everyone can relax a bit and everyone can build that relationship with that basis and that kind yeah. of certainty. Yeah. Um, and it's it might also be that we found the wrong guy that has the same name, you know, and mm-hmm. it can be that as well. So, yeah, yeah it's just um, peace of mind. And actually that's what the, D- the DNA test people often use, which is through a lab, um, are actually called peace of mind DNA tests, okay. um, which are different and cheaper than some legally binding ones that people might use for other things. Uh, so some people use DNA tests, obviously, when the child's young to establish paternity and that's got implications for custody and child support, but this has got nothing, no legal ramifications. It's not actually a legal standing, but scientifically it's enough to be pretty certain, you know, very certain and to give that peace of mind um, yeah. that those two people are definitely father and child. You know, Jen, I'm just remembering, um, so I used an intermediary service when I mm-hmm. met my mother when I was 19 and it was it was mm-hmm. really just to write a letter, which I'm sure we'll get into soon, some of the things mm-hmm. that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I met my father when I was 39, I mm-hmm. didn't use the intermediary service and um, when it came to thinking about a DNA test, mm-hmm. I this is going to sound weird because mm-hmm. I'm an adult, but I actually felt it was almost rude to ask and I was worried it would scare mm-hmm. him off if I asked him to do it and that was just my own things going through my head. So I imagine that yeah. an, using an intermediary would take some of that um 
I guess it would take some of that fraughtness about asking the question out of it. So are you often involved in facilitating the DNA test? Yes. Well, I guess we're involved in so much as if we're already involved as an intermediary, then it usually is quite a natural conversation. And I guess the reason that it's natural is because we talk about it in the terms, like what I've just kind of, the types of things I just said, Um, we just talk about it as it's really for the benefit of both parties to to have that certainty before they invest a lot of emotion in getting to know someone. Um, And I guess because it's us raising it, it's not fraught with, there's no negative implication. No one's questioning anyone or suggesting anything negative. It's, it really is just, um, as a precaution, I suppose, because as I say, with mothers, um, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> they know they've given birth to a child. Yes, um, yeah. And even if we've found a mother that, say we've found a lady that has the same name, um, she will know <laughs> if she's given yeah. birth or not. And so with fathers, it's obviously different. And so I think, I think by us raising that as a very natural part of the process, um, it's not common that anyone would get defensive about it. Or yeah. if if there are questions, we can answer those um, from our perspective and it's coming from the perspective of people that are often involved in reunions and it's, it's just coming from themes and things over time. It's not coming from, like, any personal, personal um, aspect. So, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Hopefully that makes sense. But, yeah, I know what you mean because certainly DNA testing is also quite new. I mean, it's been around for a long time, but I think it used to be a lot more expensive. Yes. So it's much more accessible now. So even when I started working in this type of area, like we weren't doing it right back at the beginning. It's something that we've started recommending, A, because it's cheaper and easily accessible, and secondly, because um, we've had some of those negative things happen over time that we've thought we just want to do the right thing by everyone. When we're involved as the intermediary, we also sometimes actually facilitate the DNA test, which means, yeah, we might bring it up with both parties and if they both say yes or want to do that then they can say no obviously um if they say yes we make some inquiries and we let them know what the cost will be um and often it's about two to three hundred dollars for a direct paternity test or if it's mm-hmm. with a sibling like a child of the father it can be a bit more around 500 mm-hmm. and um Usually people are absolutely fine with that and often it's the person that's initiating the search that will pay, although sometimes the other party says, no, let's go 50-50. Um, and basically we can get both parties' details, pass it on to the company because the two parties might not be in direct contact yet. They might not be ready to meet yet, but they want to yeah. do the DNA first. So yeah. we would actually pass on that to the lab and they would then post a kit to each person who would do the sample, send it back to the lab, and then the lab will actually send us the result and then we'll contact both parties and talk that through with them. Um, okay. 
So, yeah, just thought I'd mention that. And I guess that's another advantage. And it's why some people uh, might use the intermediary service when they're contacting a father more than they would contacting a mother because there sometimes just is an added layer of complexity. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. And I can see how you acting as an intermediary in that process could could just really um, make it a, a bit easier and a, yeah. um, a, a lot less stressful. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah, I guess that's the aim of it. So are there some other aspects of the intermediary process that are quite routine? For the first thing we would do if someone shows an interest in accessing that service is we'd explain um, how, how exactly that would look and then they would have the choice if they want to proceed or not. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel mentioned the intermediary form um, quite extensively. She did a good job of <laughs> describing yeah. that process. Um, but for us, it is a process that, yes, we actually do have a physical form that I write answers to on that form, but it's it's really to facilitate a conversation um, with the person that's wanting to do the outreach. Um, and there's a few key questions that is important for us to know as the inter- intermediary, but also can actually be part of the preparation and the mental and emotional preparation. Um, Mm. So we might let people know that obviously there's always a chance that the other party will say that they're not open to contact for whatever reason. Um, And and in that instance, I suppose we want to make the most, if that's going to be the only contact that happens, um, we want to know if the person seeking the outreach has any really important questions that they would like answers to because that might be our only chance to get those answers. Um, So there's some common themes that come up with that. Like often people really want to know about any relevant medical history. Yeah. Um, Or any any family history, you know, ethnicity or um, just things about the family, about ancestors or even about the person themselves, that they might not want contact, but they might be happy to say, oh, you know, I've worked as an accountant and I've, I like to play soccer. I'm just, like, making things up here. But those, yeah. when you know nothing about where you've come from, obviously those things are everything, can be everything. Yeah. And, um, and for a parent. And just being able to get a small amount of information if you exactly. can't get everything you hoped for. Yeah. Would be good. yeah. And, you know, if it's a parent wanting to contact a child, I suppose, Often they just want to know if their child is okay and yeah. and then anything else is good as well. You know, sometimes they want to know do they have grandchildren or um, just how is their child doing in life. So if yeah. we can at least get that for them, that's like, you know, that's the bare minimum, I guess, and that's really can be very important to people. Yeah. And that health information you were talking about, yeah. I mean, how frustrating is it as an adopted person yeah. to go to a doctor and they say, and your medical, what's your family medical history yeah. is? And you go, I don't know. No idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And often so to even the, have that. Yeah. yeah. Um, often at the time, you know, the adoption happened. When people are young, like, you know, most mothers and fathers were quite young in a yeah. lot of cases. You don't really, you know, as a 20-year-old, you don't really necessarily have medical information to share because you're young and you haven't had any health problems yet um yeah so often those things come up later in life and I guess that's why it's an important question because there might be things that are actually very important to know about yeah um yeah so I'm just um just thinking about about if the yeah what if the outcome is a positive one 
Yeah, so if the outcome's positive, um, another question we say is, you know, if on the other hand they are really happy to have been contacted and they really want to get to know you, um, what what are we allowed? Because we try to get people's permission with everything we do. Um, what can we share with them in that first contact? And if it's a positive contact, we don't really want to tell them everything about the, the other person because that's how you build a relationship is sharing those bits directly yes, but yes. sometimes they just would like a little bit to because you know they, they haven't known anything all these years and they would just like a few little snippets straight up um, so mm. we just check with people what are they happy to share and that might be around yep they're working in this kind of field or they've got a family or what some of their interests and hobbies are you know just things that they think are important to give that other person a sense that they are a real person um, and that then they can get into more detail about those things over time. Um, yeah. Let me, let me think about the other important um, parts of that process. Um, hmm. Do you have like a discussion with the person who's seeking contact about what their expectations or what their hopes are when they're seeking to yeah. make that contact? We do ask them about hopes. I guess, um, well, one aspect of that is for them to get in touch with, firstly, what are they most hoping for? You know, in an yeah. ideal world, what would they really like uh, to have yeah. happen? And then in a not-so-ideal world, if, if you know, for whatever reason the other person is not open, what could they kind of live with? You know, what could what could we try to get? for them that would be yeah. something for them to yeah. take away and um yeah and then obviously we sort of say to them look if the response is positive um we the person that is conducting the search um usually would be the person to write the first letter now the first letter the first letter i feel like i yeah. need to go dum 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes um i mean some people really don't want to write a letter and they just say, yeah. look, can I just ring them? And if both people are happy with that, then we're not, you know, not going to stand in their way. It's really what both people are comfortable with. But yes, yes. if one person is wanting to move a bit slower, then a letter is a very good place to start. Sometimes both yeah. people want to start slow. So, you know, yep, it might be a bit old-fashioned, but letters are quite nice and um you can send some photos and photos are very helpful because uh, not only can you see some resemblances, but again, the person becomes a real person, not yeah. kind of a fantasy. And it can take a while to let that sink in, I guess. Um, yeah. That you're getting just to seeing, know. Yeah. Sorry, Jane, go on. No, no, that's okay. Go on. I was just going to say, even just seeing um, somebody's handwriting for the first time, yes. I can remember the first letter I had from my mother and just seeing yeah. her handwriting. She had a beautiful script wow. and she'd written it on beautiful paper and it, um, it really told me some things Aww. about her. Yeah. yeah, because I think also the effort, you know, that it takes to – you put a bit more effort into a letter than you do like a text message or a phone call and the yeah. fact that someone has gone to that effort of writing and sending a photo – even if the other person is a little bit reluctant, sometimes yeah. they will say, look, I will receive the letter and then I'll decide. Yeah. And by receiving that letter and knowing, I guess, that the other person really cares because they've really put a lot of thought into it, 
um, that can be quite meaningful, but it also can take away some fears that, oh, they actually look really friendly. And, um, and by sharing things, you know, they might actually realise, oh, we've got some things in common um, and they might actually open up a bit more than they would have just through maybe, you know, when I talk to people, sometimes, as I say, they're very happy, but other times they're quite scared. And um, starting slowly is really, really important at times. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think those are the some of the key kind of aspects, I guess, of what we do with that yeah. service. Yeah. So, Jane, we've almost skipped a step because we're talking about the first letter that um, the person who is doing the search would write to the person they're contacting if contact has been established. But we've mm. kind of missed the part where you write the very first letter to make contact with that person. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this is a very good question and a very good point. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> After we've established, you know, that the person wants to use the intermediary service and we've completed that intermediary form and we know where we all stand, Jigsaw would uh, send a letter to the other party. Now, sometimes we actually have more than one address because there might be two two men called John Smith um, or ten men named John Smith. Now, we never send more than ten letters, but we might send two or three letters if we have no other way of distinguishing which one is the correct one. Yeah. So uh, that's where we write a very general letter. So one of the reasons it's general is because someone might get it that's actually not the correct person. Uh, but the other reason it's general and doesn't mention adoption is because we are trying to protect that person's privacy. So someone else might open their mail and they might see this letter and, the, you know, they may not know um, that yeah. this that there's an adoption in the family. So we say something like, you know, we're looking for John Smith who, you know, might have been about 19 in 1971 and um, living in such and such an area. Please contact us and we'd give our yeah. phone number and, um, so, you know, if we work part-time, we'd tell them which days we work because it's sometimes easier if they talk to the person that knows what's going on with the case. Yes. And, um and we also say to them, look, even if you don't think you're the correct person, please call us because it will help us to um, continue our search elsewhere. Yes. And we just say that we're helping someone with a family matter and we try to make it clear that it's a genuine inquiry and not yeah. some kind of weird scam that people do get <laughs> sometimes in the mail, particularly older people. Um I remember my grandma used to get weird, weird letters, people wanting money and <laughs> it really freaks people out sometimes. So sometimes if we think the person's very elderly and maybe quite vulnerable, if we do have a phone number, we, we do have a little bit of discretion and we would talk as a team about the particulars and sometimes we would actually phone someone um, yeah. if we think a letter would be more distressing to them. But for the most part, we send a letter because we think a letter particularly for mothers who are going to usually know as soon as they open that letter what it's about. Um, yeah. It's sort of a bit more respectful because they can take their time. If someone else is home, they can decide when they want to call. You know, do they want to call when they've got someone there as support or do they want to call alone because it's a private issue? So, yeah, just gives them a bit more choice. Yeah, sure. So yeah. what if they don't respond to that first letter? What happens then? Yeah, so if they don't respond, um, we would give them a little bit of time because obviously things can happen. People might be away or, you know, again, they might need a bit of time to process. So 
we do we do talk about that from the beginning with the person seeking contact that you know we are going to give them time and that could be a month or it could be a bit more yeah. and um then we would regroup we would talk to that person about you know the options and would maybe talk as a team if there's any complexity there any ethical issues um but options would be potentially sending a second letter that mm-hmm. We would then send registered person to person so they need to sign for it because that helps us identify, well, have they even got our letter? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we might acknowledge that we've sent a previous letter and that we really are keen to talk to them and that we will very much respect whatever their wishes are, but we'd just really, really like to hear from them. Yeah. Um, and often that second letter is successful. Um, if it's not, we mm-hmm. would think about if there's any other options occasionally that might be a phone call uh, or it could be that we have exhausted our options which obviously is never easy but the person themselves still always has the option of sending a direct letter because we as an organization I guess have to be a little bit more careful about people's privacy and we don't want to be harassing people but sometimes people even though there's a lot of advantages to using an intermediary service, the disadvantage is that some people might be actually a bit more sceptical of getting a letter from an organisation. They might actually think, is this some weird charity request? And they might disregard that letter. So if people feel that they just want to know that they have done everything in their power to reach out um, they might write a more direct letter that actually says this is about my adoption or this yeah. is about my child or this is about, you know, me being adopted and I will respect your wishes but, you know, I am looking for maybe some answers to some of my questions and also I want to let you know maybe some information like I'm okay or something like that. And um, yeah. that would be a that would probably be a final step. Um, yeah. And, okay. you know, obviously that's pretty hard if, if someone sends a letter like that and still doesn't get a response. But yeah, we, we just wouldn't it? pretty awful, yeah. And, and hard hard not to know. But for a lot of people it's important to know they've done their best, that yeah. they, they have done everything in their power to, to get that closure. And we would continue to support them emotionally even if we have exhausted all of the practical avenues. Yeah. Yeah. So I have been on the sending end of two such mm-hmm. um, outreaches and mm-hmm. um, they they were responded to immediately and we heard that yeah. Richard responded to Jigsaw's letter immediately. Is that often yeah. the case? Yeah. Again, I would really love to have some stats on this. Um, it's actually a little bit hard to say. Sometimes it feels like as a service we go through uh, times when we're getting lots of positive outcomes and lots of positive responses and other times when our letters might not be responded to um we kind of think oh what's going on here um so so you know often we do hear back and sometimes we don't um it's probably more often that we do than we don't um but you know sometimes the adoption experience for whoever you know whether it's a mother father adopted person or we're actually hearing more and more from siblings now uh, siblings of an adopted person because parents are getting a bit older Uh, if you think of that peak era of adoption and sometimes for siblings there's less of that emotional fear because 
they're not as scared of rejection because it, they're coming at it from a different angle. Whereas yeah. for the adopted person themselves and for parents, there can be so much fear around, will I be rejected? Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the person receiving the letter, I, you know, sometimes I guess people don't respond because they've had a very traumatic experience and the way they've coped with that is to, to not think about it. And so the thought of having to talk about it um, is extremely confronting and, and you know, provokes a lot of anxiety. So yeah. we do understand, you know, when people don't respond to those letters. Um, it's really yeah. reassuring to hear how respectful you are of that of the people's feelings when you're making that contact. Yeah. yeah. And, look, we do try to always keep the door open. If people call us and they're not ready for contact, of course we want to understand their experience um, and respect their feelings and even if they're not ready for contact with the other party they might be willing if they feel safe with us they might be willing to keep the door open and even if that's like look can we just check in in six months and actually see how you're going um, some people are happy for that and they're happy to give it a lot more thought but they do need sometimes an extended amount of time to come to that yeah. point. So we try not to ever close the door or think that it's final because things change all the time, things happen, and, um, yeah. Yeah. It must be really difficult when a person seeking contact isn't able to establish that contact or build a relationship with their family member. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's hard. it's hard not to know why. You know, if someone's not responding, it's hard to know is that because they don't want contact or is it because something else is going on for them or is it because of um, they haven't actually got the letter? So I guess that's where it's really great if we, we can at least understand that person's wishes. But even then, you know, the, the grief and the pain of not being able to make a connection I think is something that then it becomes actually a lifelong grief and loss that has to be, you know, like if someone's died almost, it has to be incorporated into that person's life. And I guess we yeah. just want to then try to support that person the best way yeah. we can. Yeah. And, I mean, the adoption process itself can be very traumatic. So exactly. um, how do you find that impacts when you're trying to contact somebody? I guess, like, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is, I guess we don't want this to be a re-traumatising experience um, because we're professionals doing this. Like I'm a social worker and a lot of these people have dealt with social workers in the past that caused harm. So we actually want them to have a different experience and to have a lot more say and a lot more voice and um, to feel safe with us and to try to... Um, I guess, negotiate what both people need, which is often yeah. hard because both people, they might need different things. Um, yeah. So it is tricky. And, yeah, sometimes, so I'll just say, sometimes we do refer people to more ongoing counselling if um, yeah. if they are needing a lot more support. Obviously, we're always going to be there, but we might not um, have the resources as a service to kind of do that weekly contact someone might need to really get to the bottom of their feelings and really process that. But, you know, yeah. we're, we're always there as a resource still. So I guess I've been on the, um, like I said, the, the search side. Um, so I've never yeah. had a um, birth parent trying to contact me. What mm -hmm. might be some of the reasons that um, if, a, if a birth parent is trying to contact their child, 
um, mm. that they might find resistance to that contact? I guess for some adopted people, and it's it, it's hard, isn't it? Because we're all different, and um, as we've talked about, you know, in previous podcast episodes, for me as well, I was wanting to know where I'd come from but Mm. for some people uh, for some adopted people they have very much built their identity around their adoptive family um, yeah and actually feel a lot of um, connection with that family they might be married they might have children of their own and they might be at a stage in their life where they actually just don't have a lot of room to add extra family members um that sounds quite awful um to a to a parent that might be listening to this but also i guess in this stage uh often the biological parents are that a bit older and the adopted person could be in that middle part of their life where they're very focused on career focused on Mm -hmm. raising children they might have elderly adoptive parents there might be a lot going on that they just haven't really um, ever stop to really um, reflect at that level, I guess, and yeah. feel feel that that's something that they're ready for. So, you know, I guess, again, we'd keep the door open and, and let them know that if they do have questions, if they do want contact, um, the other party's there and similar to, to the other way around, I guess we try to support that parent. But obviously that's... Yeah. It really is. It's just a huge grief and a huge loss if you've already had that loss early, earlier, you know, losing a child, I guess, mm. and then you try to reach out and you don't get a positive response. Um, yeah. Then, you know, it's it's just awful. Would it be right to say too that sometimes um, adopted people have sort of taken heed of all those societal messages around being grateful and that it might be a betrayal if they were to mm-hmm. um, meet with a biological parent. Is that something yeah. you come across? A lot of uh, people contact us actually after their adoptive parents have died because yeah. they just have felt that you're right, there's a lot of societal messages that we all hear all of the time, even now around really you should be grateful for the family you've had and um, they are your parents because they were there your whole life. Um, but as we've talked about in the forced adoption episode and as we'll keep talking about, that's that doesn't take into account some of the complexity and some of the things that have happened and the fact that even if someone isn't with their child, they're still a parent to that child and they still have a lot of feelings for that child. So, yeah. um, yes, a lot of people contact us after losing their adoptive parents because they feel that they won't be hurting their feelings of their parents. Um, Yeah. So I guess, you know, I guess that's where it is important. It would be great for hopefully I'm hoping some adoptive parents will, you know, hear some of these episodes as well and and, um, know that, you know, it's great if if they can support their children to, to, to know that um, it doesn't have to be a threat to them, that there is actually yeah. enough room. Something I say to people, which has probably been said by different people over time, but, um, you know, a parent can have more than one child and no one questions um, them on yeah. that love. And actually a child, you know, now we have step-parents and all sorts of things. People can have more than one set of parents and it doesn't detract from the other set. It's just yeah. different and it's can have different relationships so if everyone can 
support each other as much as possible. I think, you know, that's the best sure. scenario. Yeah. I, on a yeah. personal note with that, I know that my parents' supportive and understanding of me wanting to reach out mm-hmm. and, and find my biological family, I guess made me love them more because yeah. they um, they understood and they wanted to support me in something that was important to me. So I think um, there was never yeah. any competition in my mind. There were two separate yeah. entities and, um, yeah, there was plenty of love to go around. I guess it's like that with a lot of things, isn't it? You kind of hope your parents will support, like, your choices in life, whether that's who you marry or what job you want to do. You, it's really not. It's it's so comforting when you know your parents are on board with that. And, yeah, um, definitely. I felt, you know, very great. I feel very grateful as well that um, that my parents supported me and, and, you know, were willing, well, not willing, they wanted to meet my birth parents and, um and to kind of go on that journey and our relationship definitely evolved in a positive way um, yeah. after that. So, yeah. So um, Jane, in my career, I've had some real highlights and sometimes things just come together and you know, you're fist pumping and you think that was awesome. <laughs> What's it like for you in your role as an intermediary when positive contact is established between those two parties? It's pretty awesome <laughs> and we definitely we definitely have some high fives in the office when we're in the office not at the moment um <laughs> that's right yeah high fives in the air <laughs> we might actually have to rethink the high five <laughs> but yeah it's it's really great you know and actually recently we had um we had a, a situation with a father and a daughter having a positive uh, reconnection and the DNA lab that was involved um, actually sent me an email and said that even they were high-fiving at the DNA lab. Oh, um, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just, um, it's so good. It, it feels like, you know, adoption is so complex and it can feel like a bit of a mess at times. And so when those positive pieces fall into place, it's it kind of feels like almost like we're writing a little bit of that overall adoption, um, some of the wrong things that have happened yeah. in the past that we're putting yeah. people back together but we also know that even if it's really really positive um all relationships have complexity and they have good times and bad times and it's actually then just the beginning once you get yeah. in contact yeah that's um, so right it, yeah it, you and know, I, I guess think it, yeah, go Sorry, <laughs> No, go ahead. The, the good fun of Skype, we need a minty so that we can virtually yeah. pass each other. I'm just <laughs> yeah. thinking I've used this phrase, overused it, probably people go, oh, my God, I can't believe she's saying it again. But I always think that um, this process can be a bit like the Facebook status. It's complicated because it, it just is, yes. but it doesn't mean it doesn't make your life infinitely richer. Yeah, and I think it really does. Um, it Richer is a good way of putting it, I think. You know, it's it's just deeper, more meaningful. And um, what else was I going to say on that? I guess just, you know, for, for, for the times when there is a lot of fear, um, I guess it's knowing that it isn't always easy. So some of that fear is actually correct because it is scary. But when you kind of move through that fear and establish contact, um, yes, it doesn't mean it will be easy, but most people are able to navigate that. You know, there's some situations where people might truly not be in the right space and they might, it actually might not be in their best interest to make contact. But probably more often than not, it it actually can enhance people's mental health and it can be a really positive thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Look, Jane, thanks so much for running through the intermediate process for us. Um, This is a really well-utilised service that can ensure that all parties have access to support with this very important part of their lives. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad we've talked about it because I think it's, you know, got a lot to offer um, and and it's up to people. But either way, to access support, um, I think, can make a lot of difference. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, look, we'll say goodbye to you for now, Jane. Yes, sounds good. And I'll remind um, listeners to take a look at our podcast notes page on the Jigsaw Queensland website for further information and resources. And I'll just let you know, Jane, that um, as you know, in our next, uh, sorry, listeners and Jane, that in our (laughs) next episode, we'll be having a conversation with Lois about a loss that her and I have both recently shared, and that's the death of our adoptive parents. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you are calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Adoption.